0: Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Coming up. One of the things that that really strikes me with them, though, is that they mean business and they really do want answers and they are not going to stop until they get them.
1: For
2: Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson and I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime.
0: He threatened to set the house on fire, rape me and kill us. So there we have the and the most specific and most disturbing threat as expressed by Nanette to her sister Kim. Right. That's the only reference to rape her, shoot her, burn her body. And these are text messages that the family has made available to the investigators. In Absolutely. The Absolutely.
2: Today on The Daily Crime, something a little different. We're taking a look at a case that we're exploring in detail in a new podcast set in Louisiana called Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe. Will and I have been working behind the scenes on this one, but the
3: voice of the podcast is WWL-TV anchor and reporter Katie Moore. And Katie's actually joining us today to talk about the case of Nanette Crentel. Katie, can you introduce us to Nanette, who she was, and, and what we know about her life leading up to the summer of 2017?
0: Yeah. Hi, guys. Nanette um, was a former preschool teacher. Uh, She hadn't been working that much in the years leading up to her death, but she was married to a local fire chief here. And the two of them lived in somewhat of a remote area. Their house was a bit of a fortress that was surrounded by, you know, thick pine trees on almost every side. And the two of them lived in the home together, no kids, but some pets that were very close to Nanette. And in recent years, she had grown increasingly afraid of the outside world.
2: Katie, we'll talk a little bit more about what she was afraid of, at least according to family members and those who knew her. But let me take a step back. Tell me about Lacombe and the area in Louisiana where this house is located. I know you're an anchor and reporter at WWL in New Orleans, so— For folks who know where New Orleans is, where's Lacombe?
0: Sure. Lacombe is about 50 miles to the north of New Orleans. It's across Lake Pontchartrain, which is that big body of water that sits just above the metropolitan area that everyone knows as New Orleans Street, where the French Quarter and Bourbon Street are. This town where Nanette Crentel and her husband Steve lived is about 50 miles north, all the way across the lake. Um, it is a very piney area, lots of pine trees. It's the area that Louisianians love for the fact that it really is sportsman's paradise. Uh, it's a place that surrounds a bayou uh, that's, that's located along a bayou, Bayou Lacombe. Um, and it's really just a series of roads that are tied together by those piney woods. Um, it's an area where people go to raise their families, those who don't want to live in the city. People sort of move to the North Shore because they want to be safe away from the crime that a lot of people see as plaguing the city of New Orleans. So that's where Nanette and Steve set up their home. And it was a home that, again, they had really started to create as a fortress because of Nanette's growing fear.
2: Well, so before we go any further, let me just, let's, let's, touch on that fear and what that was all about. Can you talk about it a little bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there were some relationships in Nanette's life that were causing her to become scared. Um, she, There were some family members in the Krenell family who had criminal histories, and Nanette wasn't comfortable around them. Something about the family members was making her say, I need to have guns wherever I go. I need to have a bar that bolted the door shut basically. I needed to um, make sure that I had cameras around the property which was pretty expansive uh, to make sure that I was gonna be safe at home. And those are the things that Nanette seemed to be telling her family members in these texts and emails that we have that she sent to them that we're gonna talk about in the podcast.
3: I could always tell Nan's anxiety rate based on the length of her phone calls. And sometimes they would hit straight two hours, and that's when you're talking every day, except never when Steve was around. The weekends were no, no calls, and when there was a holiday, then she would call.
1: I know Nanette had gotten to a point, um, and this was, you know, years before her death. Um, she had gotten to a point where anytime um, she went anywhere in her car she had one in her car. And then it went from having one in her car to having one in her purse and her car. And then it went from having one in her purse and her car and then in the nightstand. So, um, you know, I think um, she knew things that were going on that she was not necessarily um, letting me or possibly other, um, you know, loved ones know. exactly what was going on in her life, but it had to have been getting bad if she felt the need to be able to have a gun no matter where she was.
3: All of this then is mounting leading up to July of 2017. And there's sort of this strange event that happens on the night of July 13th where she's having a Facebook conversation with a friend of hers. Can you walk us through what happens that night?
0: Yeah, Reed. I mean, she was talking on Facebook. She liked to do that a lot. She would chat with her friends from high school, friends that she had made in in recent years, um, and so they would trade Facebook comments. And Nanette loved to, to send people little gifts or emojis, uh, just telling them to have a happy day, sending them hugs virtually. Um, and so she was talking to her friend, Lori Rando, who lives uh, outside of Houston now. But the two of them went to high school together, and they were just having a chat, sharing some old memories um, on Facebook. And normally when they did that, Lori says that the two of them would tell each other, I love you, before they ended the chat. But that night, Lori says that it didn't happen. Nanette didn't end the conversation like she normally did. It just sort of abruptly stopped. And I think that's something that has stuck with Lori over the years.
3: The series and this case are just, it's full of so many twists and turns. And ultimately, all of them can be traced back to The day after that Facebook conversation, July 14th, what was it that happened that afternoon?
0: It was the middle of the afternoon, which is unusual for anything like this to happen. Uh, There was a massive house fire at the Krentel's house. So the fire chief's home goes up in flames and not just a part of the home, but the home burned in an inferno. Uh, It was burned to the ground. There was very little left, uh, but ash and rubble. And um, the fire chief's wife was nowhere to be found after it happened. So Nanette was missing that day. And, um, you know, we've heard from source after source on this, uh, talking about uh, fire investigations. And the one thing that they kept saying that really has stuck with me is that you don't die in a fire in the middle of the day unless there's a reason you can't get out.
2: And so, Katie, in this story, in this case, the fire chief, Steve Krentel, Annette's husband, gets a call out about a fire to his own house, right? There's actually footage of that that we play some of the audio in the podcast. But can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, the footage is incredible. It, 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 Steve again, was the fire chief. So he wasn't in a typical fire truck. What most people think is, you know, what firefighters travel in to get to a fire scene. He was in one of those fully equipped fire, like regular trucks, um, but obviously outfitted for his job. And so as he is taking off um, to go to the fire at his own house. This, what's called a tattletale camera, trips on on the inside of the car. So all of these fire trucks have been outfitted with cameras to record both the driver and what you can see as they're pulling up to the fire. And what you see on that camera, it's like a split screen when you look at the television screen. And so what you see is his view from the front and a view of him as he's pulling up to that fire scene. And you get to see his expression as well as the expression of the gentleman who's in the fire truck with him, somebody else who worked at the fire district. And the two of them pull up to this just towering inferno of flames. It's thick black smoke. It's unmistakable. And he clearly knows that's his house when he pulls up. Uh, You see very little emotion out of him at that point. Uh, But you do hear from him and he does say something before he gets out of the car. And that's something that we'll have, of course, for people in the podcast as well.
3: Throughout the rest of that day then, as firefighters are still working to put out the fire and, and to kind of control it, family members are showing up on scene and they're starting to raise questions. And as you mentioned, the big question, of course, that day is, where is Nanette? What are a few of the theories about where she might be if not in the house?
0: Well, I think some people were wondering if she had wandered into the woods, had gone hiking around um, the the big property. Again, it, it was a pretty expansive property where the Krentals lived. And um, so there was the possibility that she could have gone into the woods to go hiking. Friends and family members say she didn't really like to do that. Again, she had gotten increasingly fearful in the years uh, leading up to this incident. So many people discounted that pretty quickly Um, another theory was that maybe she had gone back into the house to go rescue her animals Um, that you know they still didn't know what all was contained in those you know towering flames so some people speculated because she was such an animal lover that maybe she went back in to get them Um, those are a couple of the theories about where she might have been that day
2: And then, obviously, the investigation is center stage for the next few days. There are questions from the family uh, for years about that investigation and how it went down. But what about this being an accident or intentional? There's pretty early signs that this was not an accident, right?
0: Yeah, um, especially, like I mentioned before, uh, the fact that people who— you know, fires like this just don't get started in the middle of the day. It's not something that typically happens with a house fire. Um, Normally it happens at night, you know, something within the house ends up setting it off. But remember, we're talking about a fire chief's house. So you would think that the things that were contained inside of that house that could cause a massive fire like this one would have been taken care of long before You know, that July day uh, that Steve Crennell, the fire chief, would have made sure that his house above all others was not going to catch fire. So I think that was shocking on its face. And I think that um, that really raised a lot of questions from people, especially since the fire had burned so hot so quickly. Um, Again, when you look at that video from Steve's fire unit, you see those flames just towering with that thick black smoke up into the air. And that typically, when you talk to fire experts, doesn't uh, resemble a fire that is something that's accidental. It wasn't like a small corner of the house had started to slowly burn. The house was ablaze. It was consumed by those flames in short order. So I think that pretty quickly made people say, wait a second, this wasn't an accident.
3: So Katie, you've now been reporting on this story for years. And over time, it's become not just a story about an official investigation, but it's also the story of an unofficial investigation that is conducted by a family that's desperate for answers. Tell us about getting to know this family as they're sort of trying to piece together what happened that day.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, the family members feel like there were a lot of problems with how this investigation was handled. And I think those were questions just like, questions that surfaced quickly about whether or not this was an accident, the family members of Nanette Krentles really started to feel like there were problems with how this investigation was being handled, even as the scene was still hot. Um, It was a July day, so obviously it's hot in Louisiana, but this thing burned really hot. And so as they're even out there at the scene still sweating because of the heat of the fire, they're saying, well, wait a second. There are some things that we feel like should be being done, but they're not. And so the family members really, even though they are... you know, fractured. This isn't one big cohesive family unit. Um, It's a blended family like so many of our families in America are today. And so there are family members who live in Iowa, some who lived in Florida, some who live in South Carolina, um, people that live all over the United States. And they all had different varying degrees of how much they even talked to each other. Well, this incident involving Nanette and the questions that they had rallied all of them together. They all started asking a lot of these questions, as I mentioned, even as that fire scene was still hot. So they started asking what was being done, what wasn't being done, why it is that they didn't have more clues from the fire scene itself, what was being done with the evidence in the case, who was being interviewed, who was not being interviewed. And so they started to do some of those things themselves. They started to document some of the things that they felt investigators really glazed over or left behind. And so they've been a very outspoken and vocal voice for justice in this case for a long time. And I think that that's really what they're after. Um, Getting to know them has been incredible. Um, Just, you know, working through the grief that they've gone through, the anger, um, all of those stages of grief that people go through. One of the things that that really strikes me with them, though, is that they mean business, and they really do want answers, and they are not going to stop until they get them.
2: Katie, there is much, much more to this story about Annette Krentel, and we invite our listener to check out your new podcast, Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe. Thanks so much for joining us here today. We appreciate it. Thank you. And for anyone who wants to hear more about this story, just go to wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can search for Bardstown. Again, it's called Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe, second season of our hit podcast, Bardstown.